You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Perney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. Kevin Perney here, and welcome back to Discover the Word podcast. Today, we're going to listen to a wonderful message by Dr. Herschel York from Luke chapter 23, and he has titled it, Seminary in Six Hours. I think this is a very powerful and moving message, and Dr. York brings out so much that is really embedded in this area of text from God's Word that um, is really a blessing to all those that listen. So without further delay, here is Dr. York. Our text is Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I am obsessed with this text. I, 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 I keep going back to it. I've preached it as a funeral text maybe 50 times. It comes up in conversations My mind keeps going, 
to this nameless thief and his profession of faith, perhaps more than any other single confession in all of the Bible. When I was a little boy, my family lived in Logan County, Kentucky at a place called Lick Skillet on Watermelon Road by Whippoorwill Creek. (laughs) And in true Kentucky fashion, we had a washing machine on our porch. It was electric. It had an electric agitator, but it did not spin. It had instead on the top of it a ringer. And I would watch my mother take the clothes out of that washing machine and she would wring them out by hand as tightly as she could, getting every drop of moisture that she could physically squeeze out of them out and then she would put them in the ringer. Sometimes she would let me turn it and it would pull them through that ringer and it would always, no matter how much she had wrung them, there would be more moisture, water, that I would watch fall out from that ringer into the washing machine and they would come out flat and stiff for her to shake them out and then hang them on the clothesline. And didn't matter how many times, sometimes she might put them through the ringer two or three times and every time they went through the ringer, more drops would fall from them. I I feel that way about this text. That no matter how much I squeeze it, no matter how many times I look at it, no matter how I study it in whatever translations and read it in Greek, there's always more that I see every time I go back to it. I, 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 I think I'm obsessed with it because it, it, it operates on so many levels. For instance, evaluating the life is often hard. It's hard to look at someone's life and legacy and summarize it. Uh, is, is Herod the Great one of the greatest architects and innovators that the world has ever known, or is he a megalomaniacal murderer and tyrant? Is Thomas Jefferson the genius of democracy and founding father, or is he a perpetrator of slavery and a racist? Is is Fritz Haber the inventor of fertilizer who saved Europe from famine? Or is he the innovator of chemical warfare and of Zyklon B, which was used to gas millions of his own Jewish brethren? Is David Dow, the unfortunate passenger, dragged off of a United Airlines flight? Or is he a doctor who lost his medical license because of prescription irregularities? It's John Calipari, the greatest coach who puts more players in the NBA than anyone else. Or has he ruined the college game with the one and done system? But you know, when it comes to these two criminals, it's really not so hard. There's nothing good said about them. There's no debate except perhaps about the extent of their crimes. We, we look at this word 
that Luke uses, he uses the word translated criminal, evildoer. Both Matthew and Mark call them lastes, robbers. I don't know, maybe they're common ordinary thieves and bandits, brigands. Interestingly enough, Josephus uses that word lastes to describe Barabbas and other insurrectionists who were in essence first century terrorists in their fight against Rome and the powers that be. Mark says that Barabbas is among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. We know that they were always planning on three crucifixions that day. Were these two, in fact, companions of Barabbas? Were they guilty and complicit in the same crime as he? Were they scheduled to die as a trio? We're not really sure. We know that they're guilty. They may be insurrectionists. They may be murderers. They are, at the very least, thieves. And they are guilty of capital crimes. And we know that as they are crucified, they both join in in the mockery and the insults hurled at Jesus. Mark records that those who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him. In other words, at the beginning, as they're crucified, both of them mock Jesus. I wonder if there could be any greater testimony of human depravity than that as men are gasping for breath, as their bodies are stretched out on a Roman cross, gasping for air, that they would take the time and make the effort to insult one with whom they die. crucifixion. The word says it all. All four evangelists simply say they crucified him. They don't say anything about the clang of hammers or three rusty nails or some of the emotional romanticism that has sprung up in our descriptions of the crucifixion. They simply say They crucified Jesus between two thieves. And whatever the extent of their crimes, whatever degree of their offense against the government, these two thieves come to the cross with the desperation of brokenness. They are broken by self. They are broken by others. They are broken by the oppression of an unjust system. They are broken by their participation in criminal activities. They are broken by a sinful and cruel and diseased world. And in their brokenness, as they die, they take the time to revile Jesus. Luke records all of the insults here hurled at Jesus. The the leaders that they call out to Jesus, the the Roman soldiers, they cry out to Jesus to save himself. The 
insult implied by the inscription over his head. And as Mark says, both of them revile Jesus. But now Luke tells us the exact words of one. Aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But something happens in the heart and the mind of this other thief. And during the hours that he hangs there, seeing the events, hearing the words of Jesus as he quotes Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he sees the soldiers dividing the garment of Jesus, just like Psalm 22 has said. As he sees Jesus crying out to God, he hears the words, he he sees him surrounded by his oppressors and he he sees no wrong in Jesus. He, He hears no malice in him. Jesus is not dying like he and his companion. And as he hangs there watching Jesus die, hearing his cries and prayers to God, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel makes its sovereign claim on the sinful heart of a dying thief. And the hardened criminal is suddenly sensitive to the words of his partner. Don't you fear God? What a question. He does not say, are you going to be this inhumane to another human being? He says, don't you fear God? Seeing that you are under the same condemnation and now first person plural, we indeed justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. What a testimony. And then with a profundity and an understanding that has escaped the scholars like Nicodemus and the disciples who have walked with Jesus for three years and to whom Jesus has told of his impending death and resurrection. Since Caesarea Philippi, this thief sees something that they never see. And he simply says, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. That is astounding. That is breathtaking. He does not dare even ask to be saved. Do you hear? Do you see? Luke tells us. This is what everyone else cries out to Jesus. The religious leaders say, he saved others. Let him save himself. The Roman soldiers say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
The other thief says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But this thief does not even dare ask to be saved. He only asked to be remembered. We talk a lot about confessions of faith, professions of faith. What's required? What does a person have to say? Do they pray a sinner's prayer? Do they call out in a statement of repentance and faith? This thief, in his statement, sees that Jesus is the one who will be saved. I can only surmise. It does not say for certain that he's Jewish. He probably was. The Romans typically crucified Jews. And growing up in that culture, he, he would have heard the Psalms. He would have sung them on the way to the temple. He, he would have heard Psalm 22. He would have heard Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. He would have heard the words of they divided my garments and cast lots. He would have heard that I am a worm and no man. He would have seen this in his own eyes fulfilled before him. And perhaps he put this together. Perhaps the words of Isaiah 53 rang in his mind. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he knows that this is not the end for Jesus. The hope that he dares to have is that this, the King of Kings, will one day sit on his throne and he will remember that a thief crucified beside him knew who he is. Rahab said in the fear of judgment the Lord your God he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath Ruth said in the affection of relationship wherever you go I will go and your people will be my people and your God my God Samuel said, in the faith of a child, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Zacchaeus said, in the form of repentance, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have wronged anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. There's no one profession of faith you see in the scriptures. They're, they're varied, but at their heart, they all reveal repentance and faith and this thief knows exactly who he is and he knows what he's done and he knows that Jesus the king will one day claim his throne and all he asks is Jesus remember me maybe my obsession with this text is because of the hope that Jesus sees faith where you and I often do not. 
And many times I've walked away from a hospital bedside, not knowing whether or not that person has put their faith and trust in Christ. Perhaps on this day, some mother, some family member, someone who stood there witnessing the crucifixion of this man, a family member, a loved one, hung their head in shame and walked away in dejection thinking that that life was wasted and it has ended. Not knowing about the conversation that took place. But Jesus saw his faith. If unbelief is the great sin, and it is, because Jesus said to those cities around Galilee, that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. Because they saw his works and they believed not. If unbelief is the great sin, then belief is the greatest act of obedience. To simply trust that Jesus is who he says he is that he will do what he has promised he will do. And after his resurrection, Jesus will rebuke the Emmaus disciples for being foolish and slow to believe. But this thief alone, he believes. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, in the midst of his own suffering, with the weight of his people crushing him, Jesus performs the greatest act of sovereignty when he looks at this thief and he simply says, today, You'll be with me in paradise. That's even more astounding than the profession of faith that the thief makes. You ever wonder what's, what's it like on the other side of death? There's something in us that would love to have a conversation with those who've gone before. What's it, what's it like? When Jesus makes this one brief statement, it's as though he pulls back the the curtain between this world and the next to let us get a glimpse that beyond death, first of all, there's personality. He says, you will be with me in paradise. You will be who you are, but you'll be a better version of you because you'll be free from sin. You'll be free from the temptation, the penalty, the very presence of sin. You who were created of God, you who were a special act of God's sovereign creation will be who God made you to be. You were created with an everlasting soul and you will spend eternity somewhere. Beyond death, there is personality. Beyond death, there's a place. He says, 
you'll be with me in paradise. I don't know what your idea of paradise may be, but I know that heaven will be greater than anything you and I can even imagine. Free from sin, free from pain, free from temptation, free from our own sinful choices, bad decisions, and brokenness in paradise. And beyond death, there's a person. Maybe the four most comforting words in the Bible, with me in paradise. Oh, what a, what a joy, what a comfort to know that I will be with Christ in paradise. Jesus says to this thief, seeing his faith, that he has a promise of eternal life in the very presence of the king in whom he now believes. That this thief who sees what the disciples do not see, what the Nicodemus does not see, what the Jewish leaders do not see, he sees that Jesus is going to claim his throne and rule and reign. And Jesus says, you're going to share in that. You will be with me in paradise. Now that's quite an education this thief receives. Six hours he hangs on the cross beside Jesus. And in those six hours he recognizes what the disciples have been hearing at least since Caesarea Philippi and never came to understand. Jesus told them that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he would be turned over to uh, the, the leaders, that he would suffer many things, that he would be crucified and he would rise again the third day. But none of the disciples are standing around the foot of the cross saying, don't worry, three days, this is going to be over. In three days, he's coming back. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they prepare for Jesus' burial. Mary and John, they attend to his death. But only the thief prepares for his resurrection. Only the thief knows this is not the end, that he is going to rise again. And in those six hours, perhaps as the Holy Spirit brings to his mind scripture that he learned as a child, or as he has heard sung in the streets or, or at the Passover, however the Holy Spirit moves, he brings him to understand who Jesus is. And in six hours on the cross, think about the education he gets. He learned theology proper because he saw the creator, God, dying for his creatures. He, he learned anthropology because beside him on the cross was perfect humanity and broken flesh and sinless blood. And before him was broken humanity in rebellion against the Lord of glory. He learned hamartiology as he came face to face with his own depravity and he said to his companion, we are justly condemned. He learned Christology as he witnessed the Lord's incarnate and anointed son bear the sins of his people. He learned bibliology from the words of scripture that fell from the lips of the promised Messiah. And he saw them fulfilled before his very eyes. He learned soteriology as he heard the Lord Jesus cry out for the Father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing and offer to him the promise 
of eternal life. He learned eschatology, both personal and cosmic, because Jesus told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he knew that the crucified Christ would rise again to sit on his throne and rule the nations. He may not have understood much about the Holy Spirit, but he experienced the effect of pneumatology because the Spirit of God lifted the veil from his wicked heart and enabled his eyes to see heaven's fountain opened and his darkened mind to comprehend what no one else had yet understood, that the crucified Lord would rise again. He may not have learned much about ecclesiology, but when he cried for mercy to the Lord of glory, he left the blazing fire and darkness of Sinai and came to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. When I read this text, my mind goes to Colossians 2. Where there it talks about how Jesus set aside the handwriting of ordinances that are against us and all of its legal demands, nailing it to his cross. And it says this, that there he disarmed the rulers and principalities. He, he put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in himself. Nothing quite puts the principalities and powers of Satan to shame like granting eternal life to a man standing at the door to hell. And right there on the cross, what the world thinks is Jesus' moment of greatest weakness, he demonstrates his incredible sovereignty by saving a condemned man. By taking him to paradise with him. If you've ever been tempted to think that you contributed one thing to your own salvation... The thief speaks from this text to disabuse you of any such notion. He has done no good work. He has not gone to church. He has not tithed. He has not been baptized. He has only believed that Jesus is going to rise and reign. And in the humility of that moment... He pleads with Jesus simply to remember him. And in that faith, humble as it is, crude and simple as it may be, Jesus grants salvation. Could there be a greater testimony to the sovereignty of God than this? Is there any difference between these two thieves? Is this one somehow more noble than the other? Has he done something better than the other that would give him any claim on heaven more than his companion? This can't be attributed to the will of man. You want to know the will of man? Look up at verse 25. You see there that Pilate, after his engagement with the religious leaders and the people about whether or not they want Barabbas or Jesus, Pilate finally It says that he delivers Jesus over to their will. 
That's what the will of man does. The will of man crucifies the Lord of glory. The will of man would rather have a Barabbas than the perfect, sinless Son of God. That's what the will of man does. It wastes dying breath to call out curses from unclean lips and a depraved heart. That's what the will of man does. It takes the sovereign will of God to snatch a dying man from Satan's grasp and say, today you will be with me in paradise. And when it's all over, the centurion sees the lifeless body of Jesus and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. And the crowds beat their breast and go away feeling bad. And the women and the followers of Jesus stand at a distance in sorrow. But the dying thief, he enters paradise where he's with Jesus. 2,000 years. Perhaps it only seems like five minutes to him. He's been with Jesus. You know, but I can't read this text without also seeing the warning here. There are two thieves. Both thieves committed crimes. Both thieves deserved death. Both thieves saw the same things, heard the same words. Both had an unending destiny, an immortal soul that would spend eternity somewhere. The only thing different, the only thing that separates the two thieves is that one had faith in Jesus. Oh. Look at these two thieves. Learn these two thieves. You will spend eternity with one of them. Near the end of his life, Peter called himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. It took Peter years of walking with Jesus, years of preaching the word to be able to say that. But this thief saw it in six hours on the cross. He, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker in those sufferings, but also in the glory that Jesus revealed to him. See, it's, these things might be hidden from the wise and the prudent, but they're revealed to babes and criminals and simple folk who share in Christ's sufferings and see his glory and seminary students and church members who realize their complete dependence 
on the risen Christ. See, it's not enough to comprehend who Jesus is or what he did or even why you are lost. But when you see the cross and the crown, when you see the thorns and the throne, when you in your brokenness and your helplessness, when you in simple faith call on the King of Kings from your sinfulness and plead with him for mercy, it is enough. It is enough. Father, I pray that you will impress on our hearts the reality that our only hope is completely and only in Jesus Christ, that he alone can save us from our sins. I pray that we will never grow beyond what the thief saw and think that our years of learning have somehow supplanted the basic truth that Jesus, the risen Lord, is the one who saves. May our lives bear witness of that truth. May we spend our days inviting others to see the sufferings of Christ, the glory that shall be revealed. Thank you for the gospel by which we're saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.